Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast celebrating the lesser discussed shyly. I'm Rachel Nisbet and with me, my co-host, Peter Edemstog. So Peter, uh, since we last spoke, Christmas has been and gone. Did you have a good time? I had a great time. I've been watching quite a lot of films, been watching quite a few classics, Trading Places, Black Christmas, Die Hard, that kind of thing. The whole, are we going to get into the whole is Die Hard a Christmas film debate? Uh, Let's not. Let's let's avoid that one. That's good though. But it is though. (laughs) So prop, you've been like going for the proper Christmas classics. Yeah, a few of those in anyway, and I've I've watched some Euro stuff as well. Amityville, to the Possession by Damiano Damiani. I haven't seen that for about thirty years. Wow, yeah, long time. <laughs> yeah, a long time, but that it still holds up. It's I think it's a really good sequel. It's much better than the original. I think. Would you say it's your favorite out of the series? Like quite a low bar oh. with the other titles. <laughs> I think it probably is, yeah. You'll need to go away and watch them all and compare and write notes and get back. To yeah, exactly. Out. Yeah, we'll come back for an episode on that. And so what have you been up to? Yeah, well, um, much the same. I've been watching a lot of awful Christmas films this month, typically with copious amounts of alcohol um, at friends and family oh, places. Yeah, um, but I, I, I didn't watch much like um, Eurocult or um, Italian cinema, but I did watch a Hallmark Christmas film set in Rome, which starred, I say starred, featured Franco Nero. <laughs> Um, which was God. absolutely awful. And his hair really bothered me because he kind of had these rat tails. But yeah, I felt a bit sad. As I feel like Franco Nero shouldn't have to do this sort of stuff. But um, no. yeah, it's about as close as I got. I did watch um, Deadly Games, the French film from 1989. Oh, yeah. Um, at this, in Glasgow, it's part of uh, Matchbox in a Club. So that was really good fun. That got me in the Christmas mood. Yeah, mostly I just sat and watched like absolute rubbish, wrapping my Christmas <laughs> presents on Christmas Eve, watching Entrapment with Sean Connery. Quality stuff. Quality Christmas Eve viewing. And I just, I was like, yeah. I was giggling my, like, on my phone. I was like, how is Catherine Sister Jones, Sean Connery's um, love interest? and there's 39 years between them so yeah but I have a question we'll watch but by the end I was like oh this twist is brilliant and I'm loving all this Y2K stuff and yeah I suppose like watching absolute rubbish is kind of part of Christmas week isn't it so it was good fun yeah it is yeah <laughs> we were quite excited after the what was it the first episode when we recorded the second episode because we had so much positive feedback and the last episode we've had a lot of positive feedback in terms of patrons haven't we yeah it's been incredible so obviously we launched our um for those of you who don't know uh, we launched uh, Fragments of Fear patron last month I don't know not even last month like a couple of weeks ago really from time of recording Um, and that was a way of us funding the podcast like to go towards hosting costs and future equipment upgrades competition prizes and things like that we probably didn't launch it at the best time with Christmas fast approaching um so yeah I think we were like bowled over by the generous support yeah it's been fantastic yeah just no I we both didn't really know what to expect we just decided to do it and then yeah completely floored by all the positive feedback and the like really generous contributions so yeah everyone who's pledged you're helping keep the podcast alive you're helping us upgrades like crappy mics and all of that so yeah just like astounding really can't thank you enough no thank you so much and we hope you enjoy all the upcoming bonus content that we've got planned so we want to pay you back with more content questionable content with us speaking for a long time <laughs> so should we should we give a shout out to the people who have been kind enough to sign up as patrons yeah let's do it um i apologize in advance for butchering anybody's name um, getting the pronunciation wrong, but I'll just reel them off. So thank you very much to Noah Sidra, Dave Felter, Callum McLeod, Nate, Simon Fitzjohn, Dick Vincent, Anastas Stamoff, Ivan Suarez, Bill Ackerman, Jesper Viking, Paul Bowser, Matt Rogerson, Carlo Bromley, Klaus Johnson, David Sodergren, James Evans, Ricky, Jay Prowse, Jason, Jeff Oates, Jeremy Ritchie, Purper Strand, Bartley Blackmon, John Plumley, Michael Cannon, Nicholas Greenwood, Stein Eric Rittledell, Rob B. Movical, Will Dunn, Jonathan Watkins, and Richard Wiley Hawkins. So you're all incredible. Thank you so much. And I apologize again for any name pronunciation errors. <laughs> um, and we thought if there's anybody else who wants to become a patron, we thought we'd let you know how to do that. And all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash fragmentspod and you can choose one of two levels. The Armando Crispino, where you support us with $1 per month and get our eternal thanks and a mention on the show. Or the Ducho Tassari, where you support us with $5 per month and you get exclusive access to our bonus episodes and we'll have some patron-exclusive competitions and raffles as well. There's also been some more news regarding some upcoming Blu-rays. Yep, do you want to share that? Yeah, I think we mentioned 
we mentioned it on the Patreon pod, but Mondo Macabro has announced Umberto Lenz's Oasis of Fear or Dirty Pictures from 1971. And that's coming out. Not quite sure when, but it shouldn't be too far off. And also, interestingly enough, Severin teased us with a shot of Carol Baker from So Sweet, So Perverse the other day. Yeah, reflecting on the Christmas barber, wasn't she? Exactly. So hopefully that's coming out as well. They haven't posted anything more about it, but it's definitely taken from that film. So fingers crossed. I thought you were going to say they're definitely taken from um, episode two of Fragments of Fear. Like the minute they heard <laughs> that drop, they're like, we need to get that straight out. Spread the word. <laughs> Thank you so much, Severin, for sorting that out. <laughs> the campaign is working. Our quest to get Blu-rays um, released is... I was just going to say, and we've got um, 88 Films release of Paranoia, aka A Quiet Place to Kill, coming out in January on Blu-ray. So yeah, that's worth picking up if you're in the UK or want to get that imported. And it has notes from me, if you're interested in reading them. Of course people are. You should be anyway, interested <laughs> so. in Rachel's notes. That's quite good in terms of, of Lency announcements over the last couple of months. Yeah, because we've been banging on about it for years that we want more Lency on Blu-ray and that's looking like at least two of his films, maybe three, yeah. maybe two release the same one. Yeah, and that's probably just Orgasmo and Knife of Ice. Which we hope would follow. I think that was with Dorado. but Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So I'm not sure what happens with that. It's always a case of wait and see, isn't it? You, sometimes you're a bit dubious about announcements because so many... Well, not so many, but a few get announced and you never see or hear anything again. So all yeah. the final artwork and stuff's out and we feel a bit easier about things. And Argento's um, The Card Play Phantom and the Phantom of the Opera are out soon from um, Scorpion as well. So yeah, busy time. Yeah, still haven't heard anything more about those Vinegar Syndromes, Jallo or slash horror box sets, but that's something to keep your eyes on as well. Yeah, and like we've said before, this is a way of us kind of communicating to you like what releases are going to be coming out or what we hear um, or what's coming out that month or projected to come out. So yeah, a good source of news for you. Yeah, I had shipment notice the other day from Tetro Video. Oh, really? A fairly new label. I don't really know all that much about it. It's mostly modern stuff, but they're releasing um, The House of the Blue Shadows. So that'd be exciting to see what that's like as well. That's DVD only, unfortunately, yeah. but still it's not been available as far as I know in, in English before. No. So I'm really excited about it, but I remember being excited when it first got announced and I don't know how long ago that was, so... Yeah. yeah, that's good news to hear it's finally shipping because it has been a while. Yeah. So that'll be an exciting one. Maybe one we might even talk about in the future. Exactly. Yeah, it certainly seems to be within our remit. So we might return to that one. Yeah. Right. So shall we get into this episode's film then? Yeah, let's do it. First of all, as always, we'll be talking about the film in detail. So this podcast will contain spoilers. So consider yourself warned. So today's podcast is about Duccio Tessari's 1974 Shadow of the Senza Memoria, a.k.a. Puzzle. like I was born eight months ago in that clinic where I woke up. But who am I? Who? Who? The doctor says I'm scared. Scared of what I'd remember. Your name is Ted Walden. You were born 30 years ago. Here in jolly old England, in Brockhurst in Kent. You lived here, on the continent, and in New York. You got married two years ago to an American. Married? Now then, buddy boy, you tell me whether... His title translates to The Man Without a Memory, which simply describes the premise of the film. So when Peter and I were discussing films, we wanted to do um, sooner rather than later on the podcast. Puzzle was an obvious choice for us. And we like the fact that it's a bit unconventional as Shall Go deviates from the more trope-heavy titles. Um, it features some great performances from actors that you don't really typically see in the genre, which makes it quite refreshing. Um, and obviously this isn't an ostentatious jet-setter-style Shallow, but that's actually what's quite nice about it. We do have some beautiful locations in the film, which we'll get into later on um, but for the most part it's a film that really hinges on its central mystery and its protagonists and their characterizations. Um, a really nicely plotted Jalo that sadly hasn't yet received a Blu-ray release but it's still obtainable and it's not super obscure in terms of availability so hopefully people will be able to get hold of this one. Like with Autopsy which we talked about in our first episode, Puzzle comes after the genre's golden period and we're seeing more experimental forms of the genre at this point, perhaps less formulaic examples um, that play around more with form which Puzzle certainly adheres to. Uh, it doesn't follow that Jalo blueprint 
different as much as other films. That's not to say there, there aren't any Argento-style flourishes in the film. Um, again, something we'll get onto later, but it feels like more of its own entity, I would say. Obviously, the film comes off the back of Tessari's previous Shiloh, The Bloodstained Butterfly, 1971, and Death Occurred Last Night in 1970, if you're... I suppose that's kind of part shallow, part drama. Um, but yeah, the idea behind Puzzle was conceived slightly earlier, um, but I'm sure Peter will get into that later. But firstly, you're going to talk a wee bit about Tassari and his career, aren't you? Yeah, Tassari is a director that has some well-loved films, but I'm not sure if people are familiar with just how successful he was as a director. He was born Amadeo Tassari on October 11th in Genoa in 1926 and moved to Rome in the 1950s where he began working on documentaries and later on as an assistant director all while writing screenplays. One of his earliest assignments was working on the screenplay for Mario Bernard's The Last Days of Pompeii with Sergio Leone and Sergio Cabucci as well as director of photography Enzo Barboni and these men all went on to become the founding fathers of the Spaghetti Western. Tesori also worked on screenplays for Vittorio Cotafavi, as well as Ricardo Freire's Samson and the Seven Miracles of the World, and Mario Bava's Hercules in a Haunted World, before making his debut with Pepulum parody My Son the Hero in 1962. And in 1964, he was drafted by Sergio Leone to work on a script for A Fistful of Dollars, which obviously went on to become a massive hit. But the year after, Tesori's big breakthrough hit was released. A Pistol for Ringo's starring Giuliano Gemma, became such a huge success that, that it had a sequel made in the same year, and the films went on to become the fourth and fifth best-grossing films of the year and inspiring countless Ringo imitations. He went on to make several successful films in different genres, Eurus by Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Giuliano Gemma again, romantic comedy Better Widow, I Bastardi starring Rita Hayworth, Giuliano Gemma and Klaus Kinski, and the highly successful crime drama Tony Arcenta or No Way Out starring Alain Delon. From what I understand, Tesori seems to have been a very well-liked man, something of a bon vivant, interested in clothes and with bespoke suits by expensive tailors and often hosting parties in his and his second wife, actress Lorella De Luca's home. In the book Darkening the Italian Screen by Eugenio Ercolani, John Morgan or Giovanni Lombardo recalls that you could meet Lucia Fulci, Sudio Raya and Michelangelo Antonioni at these parties. Duccia Tessari was 48 at the time of directing Puzzle and it was his 20th feature and the experience shows. He previously helmed two Jallo, Defico Last Night in 1970 and The Bloodstained Butterfly in 1971, which even though they were slightly atypical had been quite financially successful. But the genesis of Puzzle was a script for a science fiction film that was commissioned by Angelo Rizzoli that Ernesto Gastaldi had written called La Fine dell'Eternità, The End of Eternity, that was intended for Giuliano Gemma. But uh, after the death of the producer, the project was put on hold until Gioffredo Lombardo at Titanus Films asked Castaldi for a thriller and Castaldi proceeded to adapt it to a giallo script instead. Luciano Martino brought Castaldi a similar story idea written by Roberto Infocelli and Infocelli, who was a producer in his own right and a writer and director who played an important part in, in the popularization of the Polizicetti genre with films like his um, The Great Kidnapping from 1973 before he was unfortunately killed in a car accident in France at the age of 38. But Gastaldi incorporated some of Infocelli's ideas and Tesori was involved in revisions of the script. According to Gastaldi, Bruno de Geronimo, who's credited on the film, was never involved in the actual writing of the script. It's interesting to hear about Sari, like him as not just a filmmaker, but as a person. Like, yeah. to get an idea of who he is, you know, who he was, and all the custom suits and parties and things. It just really paints a picture. So, Rachel, do you want to do the synopsis? Um, yeah, as always, I'll give a brief synopsis about the film. So, in London, a man is being treated for amnesia, having woken up in a clinic following a car accident. When the man is attacked by a stranger who accuses him of being a double crosser, it emerges that nothing is quite what it appears to be. After he receives a mysterious telegram from a woman named Sarah, the man finds himself in Portofino, trying to uncover the truth about his identity whilst trying to stay alive. Good stuff. And we should probably talk a little bit about who's who's in it as well, the main players. So we'll start off with Peter Altered, who's played by Luke Miranda, uh, the French actor who was born in on the 3rd of September 1943. He started acting in the early 70s in smaller roles in films like Steve McQueen's Le Mans and before his appearance in Sergio Martino's Torso. But it wasn't really until The Violent Professionals, also by Martino, when he became like a proper 
Politsuteski superstar. And he worked with um, Martino again and Fernando De Leo, Stelvio Massi and Massimo Tarantini. And he was he was quite the thing there for a while. And he retired from the industry in the late 80s. And I believe he worked as an antiques dealer in Paris. Oh, wow. Life imitating art. Yeah. <laughs> Then we have Senta Berger playing Sarah Grimaldi. Uh, Berger is an Austrian actress who's worked in various European film and television productions across the course of her career. Uh, she started out in the 1950s and appeared in a copious number of films, so I'll name just a select few of her roles. She was in the French film Diabolical Years, starring alongside Alan Delon, which I believe has just received a Blu-ray release. Um, yes, yeah. yeah. Very enjoyable film. Uh, she starred in Campanelli's When Women Had Tales and When Women Lost Their Tales, um, which are these prehistoric comedies from the early 1970s. She also appeared in Sales Silvio Massey's Speed Driver in 1980 with the wonderful Fabio Testi. Uh, she married Michael Verhoeven, son of film director Paul Verhoeven, but not the one that you're probably thinking of, um, in the 1960s. And she starred in his 1986 film Killing Cars. And she was in various other Italian productions, such as Nest of Vipers in 1978 and Vancina's Tre Cronaca in 1990. So yeah, she has so many roles. It's just a select few. Um, she's worked across various different countries, but she's still very much working today, uh, mostly in German productions. And she currently has a long-standing role on a German television serial. Um, but we'll talk about ah. Berger's character and puzzle later on in the podcast. But I find her to be such an engaging actress and she exudes such warmth and charisma and at times real yeah. sensitivity, which you'll see throughout the course of Puzzle. Puzzle was her only shallow, which is a bit of a shame because she delivers such a memorable performance here. Yeah, I completely agree. She's she's excellent in this. But as you said, we'll, we'll come back to her and her character. Next one up is um, Umberto Orsini, who plays Daniele or as he was called in the English dub, Reinhardt. Orsini was born in 1934 and he started out as a stage actor in the 50s before he moved into films. And he got his first lead in 1962 in Giuseppe Petroni Griffi's Il Mare. And he showed up in both genre films and more highbrow cinema, such as Visconti's The Damned and Ludwig during his career. He's a very dependable character actor. And I think he's one of those people that you recognise even if you can't put a name to him. But he's often quite chameleon-like and he um, he works well in different kinds of roles. I think for Eurocult fans, he's probably best known for either Biagetti's Yacht Giallo Interbang from 1969 and also for roles in Sergius Lima's Violent City, uh, Alberto Di Martino's Antichrist, in Tesari's um, Tony Alcento on No Way Out. Didn't show up in all that many, many jolly, but he's one of those actors I'm always happy to see, like Luigi Pastilli or Frank Wolf, a, a very dependent very versatile character actor as far as I know he's still alive but he's not acting he went back to the theatre after the 80s when when the movie roles stopped coming in and he was active for quite a while in in theatre yeah, so I guess next is Duelio Crucini, who plays Luca, was a child actor at the time, who subsequently stopped acting once outside of his teenage years. His first film role was in 1870, uh, the film, not the year, in which he acted alongside Anna Magnani and Marcello Mastriani. So quite a role for a young lad. After that, he had a few small uncredited roles, including Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling in 1972, and then went on to more prominent roles in films such as Syndicate Sadus, Cry Onion and Puzzle. And interestingly enough, he was in another film with Santa Berger in the same year as Puzzle, uh, Sergio Martino's La Bellissima Estata. And quite a nice little bit of trivia for that film that fellow Kirby enthusiasm fans may appreciate is that one of the songs in the film Frolic, um, penned by composer Luciano Michelini, was bought by HBO and used as a theme for Curb. So there's an interesting wee connection there, although Larry David uh-huh. heard the song in a bank advert and not the film itself. I believe he unfortunately died quite young in a in an overdose. Oh, really? Yeah, he was only like 25 or something. I kind of wonder happened to him afterwards and I was like searching and then I don't know anything more about it but it's just I can't remember where I read it now but I, I do believe he died in an overdose unfortunately that's a shame because there's a nice sweet interview with him and something about his you know when he got that first role and about his experiences and things he seemed like a nice child he does really well in this I think he's is one of the better performances by a by a child actor in a an Italian genre film I'd have to say absolutely I think you know there's always this um negativity towards child actors and we won't mention any names in particular but I think there's an obvious one people tend to jump to when it comes to Italian genre cinema but yeah no he's brilliant in it he's really good I think he's really makes the film actually Okay, and next up, Mary Kane, or at least the, that's the name she uses for Anita Strindberg, 
it's a small role for Anita and I'm sure there are other films that we're going to talk about in the future where we could spend a bit more time talking about the Swedish actress but this was a couple of years after a triumphant time in 1971-1972 and her roles were starting to get a bit smaller she was 37 at the time even though she was advertised as younger by her by her agents yeah. and Puzzle was the second film directed by Duccio Tesari that Anita was cast in but unfortunately her role is only slightly bigger than the one she had in Forza G. She never really got to know Tassari, which is not surprising considering how how little time she must have spent on set. A little bit of a wasted opportunity as far as Anita was concerned here, but she because she only gets about two minutes of screen time and she was still quite a big name and at least a big enough name to warrant her being prominently featured on one of the posters in the Futabusta sets and the name building on the different posters as well. That's quite interesting actually, yeah, because it is such a small role but I suppose by this point she had a bit of clout in terms of you know previous roles that she'd been in in various Charlie and other Italian films yeah considering she had a bit of a bit of name recognition it's it's surprising that they used her for such a small role because it's just three scenes and I'm sure she doesn't get more screen time than about two minutes tops during the film I mean to be honest it's one of those ones where you kind of sometimes almost forget that she's in it because it is such a small role yeah you kind of always think about like four or five other actors above her yeah not her finest role in a shallow let's put it that way not yeah. any fault of her own just from the fact she's not really got anything to work with no exactly it's only about four or five lines or something so she she would be one of the sort of secondary characters really in this one yeah so if you see her name and expect her to be starring then you'd probably be a bit disappointed wouldn't you um, and finally, we have um, Bruno Corazari as George. Corazari was born in 1940. He was a fairly prolific actor in the 1960s and 1970s. He's perhaps a name you might not know, but you're sure to recognise, um, just like with Umberto. He started out in fairly modest roles in spaghetti westerns, um, and as Italian genre cinema developed in the 1970s, he found himself in more prominent roles, appearing in his fair share of Chalet and Puzzioteschi. I have a wee list here of some of the films he's been in, just to demonstrate how many films um, you might be familiar with that feature him. So we have the likes of Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Anna, The Pleasure, The Tournament, Strange Vice of Mrs. Lord, then lesser kind of uncredited roles in Westerns, such as Once Upon a Time in the West, Great Silence, using Four of the Apocalypse. She's been in all sorts of Black Cat, The Psychic, so... And I'm afraid, afraid as well. Yeah, so um, he was in his fair share of these sorts of films. Like with many actors of his story, he found himself moving towards television productions during the decline of the Italian film industry. But he still found the odd role in films like Umberto Bava's Body Puzzle in 1992. This is really an unusually big role for him, isn't it? Yeah, he's he's kind of a... Well, yeah, I suppose because he appears as like um, the antagonist, really. Obviously, that doesn't turn out to be completely true. He's not the main one. But yeah, he's the one that gets the most screen time. Yeah. It's like quite a fun role for someone like him. Seems to be enjoying it. Yeah. So those are the players, and that maybe brings us on to the film. I think it might be worth mentioning, like you did, Julien Duvivier's 1967 thriller, Diabolically Yours. This French-Italian co-production did fairly well in Italy as Diabolicamente Tua, and I think we mentioned it in the So Sweet, So Perverse pod. In Diabolically Yours, Alain Delon plays a man who does not recognise his wife, who's played by Senta Berger. It just seems to... It's it's either an odd coincidence, or there's a a slight um, influence by this film. I'm not sure what do you think yeah it's hard to tell because there's so many films that have this premise i mean i I feel like you're right i feel like it had to be some sort of inspiration or someone must have seen her in that role i mean i I presume there's there's other roles she's done in italian films prior to puzzle between that but it does seem like a bit of a strange coincidence but it it might well be but yeah it's quite interesting yeah to go and watch that after puzzle and see yeah the similarities between the two yeah because that's that plays out slightly differently yes (laughs) but the memory loss is something to to talk about a little bit yeah don't you think? Yes. Um, so Puzzle Central Mystery hinges on the mysterious character of Ted slash Peter, an amnesiac man who can't recall his past and is trying to piece together his involvement in this strange murder slash this um, drug law and how he's implicated in that. We have this Argentalite plot device with a character who can't recall the face of the person in the mirror, um, which is immediately evocative of Bird with a Crystal Plumage and Deep Reds. Um, it's this idea of unlocking something in one's memory in order to solve a puzzle or to seek an explanation for events that one can't quite recall. So in many ways, Puzzle uses a fairly traditional like device here but what sets it apart is this unique structure in which we're trying to piece together a storyline from the fragments that present themselves throughout and it's effective because we the audience are discovering who Ted is as he does and we're willing for him to be good to repair his relationship with his wife and to become this better version of himself and not succumb to his past demons and not revert back to his nefarious ways yeah I completely agree with that I mean if you 
compared to Argento's Jali, definitely hinging on a single important forgotten detail, but in this case, he's suffering from amnesia altogether. But like you say, these episodes where he's trying to recall these fragments of, of what's happened, I think they're really effective in this slightly abstract imagery of with black and just small pieces of information coming back to him. So I think those, those are very effective scenes, uh, like the image of him cutting a man's throat and and also with, with a clock in view and stuff like that. Yeah, the way that the film is shot, I mean, it, it's not very experimental in terms of its cinematography. And um, so I think those bits really do stand out because they're so different from the rest of the film. And we have these almost like tourist like yeah. locales, like Portofino, the way it's shot. It's very beautiful, lush. And then we cut to these flashbacks. Yeah, that, as you said, are kind of abstract, surreal, heavy use of black. Looking into this mirror, it's almost like he's looking into the darkness of a soul. Um, there's nothing yeah. else around, um, just the mirror and him having to reflect on himself. So yeah, they, they're very effective, I think. And we often see shots of clocks and mirrors throughout the film and we get the sense of characters reflecting on themselves and perhaps questioning who they are, in particular Ted, obviously, and reflecting on the past and the passage of time, and mistakes they made and whether they can rectify them. Um, so there's certainly an awareness in the film conveyed through the visual of the ideas at play, especially in relation to perception of oneself and one's past. The character of Ted is haunted by his inability to remember past events but he's also terrified of his memory coming back and revealing this dark truth. So he's always questioning who he is and what the past will unveil. So the mirror in many ways is the key to Edward unlocking his past. He just can't quite see what he needs to even though it's right in front of him. But Ted is somewhat of an unreliable narrator due to his issues with his memory um, and he's an unreliable protagonist per se. There's similarities here with autopsy as previously mentioned and the fact that we don't necessarily know if what our character is experiencing is true to what's really happening and we kind of question um, question who they are, um, not necessarily like and even though we know that Ted has had this shady past we're not really sure like how bad he is or if he's going to revert back so there's always that um, question in the film and it's perhaps as well worth comparing Puzzle to Bazzoni's Footprints on the Moon from 1975 um, which also has a premise based around a character with amnesia who tries to recall events from their past in order to unlock a mystery. What's engaging here for the audience is not necessarily who he is but almost like how he copes with that in the present how he reconnects with his wife and then re-engages with who he is and who he's going to be compared to his past self. There's aspersions cast on each character because Ted's perception of these people from his past are completely new and he's only going by what he's told and what he feels and how he reads the situation. Um, so that's a quite an effective way of creating distrust throughout the film as well. And yeah, it's perhaps different to other jellies. The mystery doesn't completely hinge on a whodunit. It's weird because that's the whole point of the film, isn't it? It's like this idea of him unlocking his memory and it's the man without a memory. But overall, there's not loads to say about it because I don't think you necessarily have that big reveal. There's not like a big reveal or you don't slowly get reveals in it creates this big picture it's slightly different than that yeah yeah to say um i think in many ways the the central mystery is i wouldn't say uninteresting but no i think it takes a backseat to the relationship between the characters i think that's so much more interesting here absolutely sarah is is one of my favorite characters in the jello actually i mean i like the fact that she's so ordinary she's not a model she's not a jet setter she's she's a swim teacher and she's charming unlikable and she's got integrity i think her relationship with both daniela and ted and also actually with with luca are the things that that interest me the most in the film yeah completely it's very much a character-based film isn't it so the characterization of sarah in particular is really um engaging and yeah, it's how she relates to those characters yeah yeah and like you said it's, it's so nice that she's it sounds like a criticism when you're saying she's so normal but there's far more depth to her than a lot of other kind of jalo heroines I would say, um, yeah. like say, just she seems very warm and loving, and she has this regular job and seems fairly compassionate. And I think even in the the end scene where she's fighting off her assailant, she's saying, you know, I'm not usually violent, and this isn't how I am, and things. So, um, yeah, we got get a real sense of her character throughout. And I think it helps as well that she's got such. I think she's got a really great rapport with Umberto Orsini. I think their relationship is really like really believable, and you genuinely feel like they've got a lot of affection for each other. Or seen as well after having seen like such a charming man during the whole film, he really manages to switch it up towards the end and delivers a really convincing and menacing performance when he turns out to be one of the drug smuggling villains as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and he elicits a certain sense of sympathy, doesn't he? There's a scene in the restaurant um where Daniela sits with Sarah and Luca and he stretches across the table to kind of caress her hand or hold it and she just bats them off a wee bit and rebuffs them. Yeah. Um, and her husband's come on the scene and this friendship that's blossoming into 
so there's this romantic um, relationship just seems to be quashed by Ted's arrival and then again we still don't know at this point if Ted is who he says he is if he has Sarah's best interests at heart so yeah he does a very good job in making us believe that he's uh, he's one of the good guys and that he's looking out for her which makes this betrayal just feel so harsh at the end yeah because when the film starts off it feels very much like it's going to be Ted's story but I think in in many more ways it's it's Sarah's story yeah the film turns out to be about her much more and again with um, a Gestaldi script with with an interesting female character he really he's really very good at delivering those I think yeah absolutely it's head and shoulders kind of above some of the other um script writers that are kind of working in the genre at the time yeah she really feels fleshed out i think you know Bird's performance as well is just brilliant i mean she's so expressive brings such a warmth and sensitivity and you can really kind of feel her heart breaking at various points in this dilemma that she's yeah. there to trust ted and open up again because she's obviously this really hurt woman and um, who's been yeah. through it um so there's a real tenderness to it i think some people like and i've mentioned this in previous podcasts i think some people aren't so bothered by the more character driven jelly no. with that but i think if you do like those kind of films this is a really wonderful one to watch because yeah sarah's so engaging and her relationship with luca is absolutely wonderful it's just really it's despite all the, the violence that happens at the end and the drug smuggling all of that it's actually quite a sweet story about yeah no i agree there's a lot of sweetness and i think i think this is one of the interesting things about desari as well because he worked in quite a few different genres he he made pepla he made westerns he made jolly war film and obviously i wouldn't say polititeski with no way out but crime thriller he worked in different genres and he always managed to find a really good balance between for the material because if you compare this one to to Death Occurred Last Night or The Bloodstained Butterfly. They're quite different. This is a more conventional Jallo, I suppose, than, than, than those other ones. It's a much less bleak Jallo than the other ones. Yeah. I mean, at its heart, it's kind of a story about a love rekindled, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose like when I was writing my notes for this, thinking about films that Puzzle reminded me of, in terms of its portrayal of Sarah and Ted's relationship, um, one of which was Umberto Lenzi's uh, Paranoia, aka A Quiet Place to Kill in 1970. And I first attributed that similarity to the shared screenwriter in Bruno de Geronimo. But you said that, and as I found out myself, that he apparently didn't have anything to do with it. Um, So I think that's just a, a strange uh, coincidence. But yeah, both films feature slightly older characters characters i mean i think he's 33 isn't he ted yeah. and that she's about early 30s as well um so slightly older characters by perhaps shallow standards you know who've been married and are separated or in the process of separation and their marriages have fallen apart due to various differences and, and like with paranoia puzzle perhaps more so delves into this idea of rekindled love and a couple coming together again um and this idea of growth and change and learning from past mistakes and again if we're drawn comparison to other shelly of the period another one that i thought of was um uh, that explores rekindled love in an albeit slightly different way Aldo Lados who saw her die um, from 1972 yeah. which again features slightly older characters who find themselves connecting with one another um, once again in the face of trauma and yeah there's that real tenderness and sensitivity to Ted and Sarah's relationship and even though Ted doesn't quite understand what they once had or what happened in the past he's really willing to make it right again and he wants to court her and he wants to do everything he can I think he makes some comment about oh like that's my wife or like I've done well or something like that you know he's yeah. he's obviously you know still feels something towards her even though if he can't remember those feelings so it's just really sweet I really like it maybe that's some sort of romantic bone in my body that I thought was great <laughs> but yeah no, it's lovely. It feels more like, um, you said slightly older characters, it does feel like a slightly more adult sense of of love and relationship in these films than than many of the other films. Yeah, there's not like all that adultery going on, isn't there? Yeah, even though she has this relationship that's blossoming with Daniele, she's still faithful in some ways to Ted and she tries to curtail what's going on with him and she's slightly wary about Ted um, but she's still, you know, this is the man she loves and wants to go back to. So she has this, like you mentioned earlier, this moralistic, she has this code of honour, she wants to kind of cut things off with Daniele and see where things go with Ted. So it's a bit more of a realistic portrayal perhaps of what goes on in these affairs of the heart yeah i think the first the first time i watched it i think i wasn't that impressed by the relationship between Berger and miranda and that they didn't have chemistry but as i've re-watched it i've i've of course realized that it's more about obviously they would be tentative towards each other uh, with him first coming back but i thought it would have been quicker but it's just her being careful and not wanting to be hurt again really and it's not really until what is it the last two minutes or even the last minute of the film that you feel that she's sort of opening up towards ted again and 
and really lets her defenses down. Yeah, completely. No, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, it is very much her story and how she comes to love him again or how she, well, not love him again, but how she learns to open up to him again and trust him. And hopefully Ted is a better person by this point because his memory never really fully comes back from my understanding. I mean, he does remember what happened, but I don't think it's a kind of light bulb moment where he's like, oh yeah, I remember married to you. I think it's more just like a new start at this point. Exactly. He's he's turned into this more much more pleasant version of himself. Yeah, no, completely. It's just yeah, interesting when you think about the Italian male and all the kind of gender roles at the time, because that seems a bit more progressive again. I also really like Sarah's relationship with Luca. I think um, we touched on how good Tullio Cruciani is. But again, I think he brings a bit of comedy, which really works. I mean, he feels like he could be this charming 10-year-old who's besotted with her. And it's not forced. It just feels, I don't know, like when I said ordinary, that that Sarah's ordinary, it just feels like normal relationships in a good way. I mean, not like it's bland and boring, but it's just, it's believable, I think. Absolutely, it's, it's relatable, isn't it? Yeah. And he's not, they don't make Luca too brash. Like they could make him a lot more of a kind of wisecracking wee kid, but they, they, the line's toad, isn't it? It never goes that far. And he shows this real tenderness and sensitivity to her. And I know I keep using those words, but it's it's very true. And he goes out and walks her dog and he says, I'm going to protect you. And like he really cares about her, even though there's not much that he could do to protect her, but he's always on the lookout. And he's, he's so devastated when Whiskey, the wee dog, disappears when he was in his care. And, yeah. and then there's that lovely scene as well at the end where he presents her the photo album. And we frequently see him taking pictures and he presents the photo album with all the pictures he's taken, pictures of her. There's the picture, of course, that reveals uh, the true motives of Daniele. But um, yeah, it's, it's really lovely. He obviously cares about her. Nice moments that maybe some other filmmakers wouldn't really bother with but feel really significant in puzzle yeah we've spoken quite a lot about the relationships and it might sound like there's no thriller elements in this film at all but there are should we talk a little bit about those as well yeah let's move on to something a bit more um thrilling yeah one scene that really stuck out for me and i think it is partly because there are these moments of real sweetness um in the film that the moments of violence do really um feel almost jarring at times so yeah and one example that happens quite early on is the death of the dog whiskey throat slit and he's lying on her bed and it just seems to come out of so like left field because we know somebody's been and breaking into sarah's home but it's very extreme in terms of what then happens next it goes from breaking into her home but not stealing anything to someone you know slitting a dog's throat and it's quite graphic and i think this will be the second or third film we've talked about that involves animal death (laughs) yeah because you have look at the child who's walking whiskey is the most adorable wee dog ever and then like yeah then his throat slit and it just seems like the child was all happy with the dog and then he's massacred it was really horrible yeah yeah like you say those those moments of violence they come in and they seem a lot more shocking because there's not a murder every 10 13 minutes yeah so you can't anticipate it so they end up feeling a, a lot more jarring than they would in in a film by say sergio martino for example mm-hmm, absolutely speaking of set pieces i mean sorry he wasn't really a an argento or a martino when it comes to set pieces and some of the action is restricted to Sarah's house especially after she breaks a leg and receives the plaster mm-hmm. and if you compare it to for example Sergio Martino's torso that where Susie Kendall has her injured foot and she's stalked in the house by the killer it doesn't end up feeling the same way here like Sarah's in a real danger but I think that's perhaps mostly because Bruno Corazzari he sort of lacks a little bit of menace required to feel like a real physical threat to Sarah yeah would you agree with that or not? Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I mean, he's obviously threatening her, but he doesn't have the malice of perhaps someone like Ivan Razumov. There's not that yeah. creepy factor in the way he kind of presents himself. He doesn't, even though he appears uninvited, it's not like he's creeping. It's not like you find him, he like jumps out from under a bed or something. Not that I'm suggesting you should do that, but it's, you know, he's not, you know, he'll hide behind a door and with the lights on and then come out, but it doesn't feel as menacing as perhaps the role would be in another shadow director's film. Because Orsini, on the other hand, when, when he switches from being the good guy to turning out to be the bad guy he very much feels like a threat i think a slightly different actor in the role of george would have helped make all the threats to to sarah feel a little bit bigger yeah and i feel like because you know that there's going to be the central mystery that unravels at some point it feels like george is just too obvious as a threat 
so you know there's got to be yeah. something more so you don't necessarily take him seriously and he's got this connection with Ted and he introduces himself I think as a friend so yeah. it, it feels like he knows them in some way and yeah so you don't have that same kind of level of threat and yeah he's got that wee tick doesn't he where he's got the hanky at all times and yeah. he just doesn't he just doesn't come you know he's got that blonde almost slightly receding hairline and the coat and the flares yeah as I said he's no Ivan Razumov as he's not got that menace that other characters actors seem to have had no he does get a good scene though where he's flicking um, the lip matches at, at Sarah an, an obvious nod to Audrey Hepburn's ordeal at the hands of James Coburn in, in Stanley Donnan's charade from 1963 and I like the little meta moment where George says do you like this little game I saw in a movie it worked fine yeah it's a really nice moment, isn't it? Just, it's just a nice reference to um, cinema, isn't it? Exactly. I think Audrey Hepburn goes through something similar in Wait Until Dark as well, if I'm not mistaken. Never underestimate a match near a polyester dressing gown. <laughs> yeah. I don't think hers is polyester, but now <laughs> it's flames it. in, <laughs> yeah, in seconds. Is that an alternative ending for a puzzle? Is it Sarah's dressing gown ignites and... <laughs> I think I prefer it this way. Yeah, I think it's a bit nicer, the ending here. Um, So should we talk about the ending of the film then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I suppose despite Puzzle's fairly tame levels of violence, um, minus the dog massacre, fairly tame levels of violence, certainly in terms of the violence often displayed within the shadow, the film's climax is particularly violent and feels like a precursor a bit to the American slashers that emerged in the late 70s, early 80s. Obviously, you've got that direct connection in your mind to The Shining with the bursting through the door. Probably more likely to be influenced, if anything, by The Phantom Carriage, right? Yeah. 21, although it might just be, you know, Tassari thought it would be a nice... Um, moment. But yeah, the image of Sarah with her slashed arm held up in front of her bears striking similarity to the placement and slashing of Angie Dickinson's arm in uh, Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. Dress to Kill. Yeah, which is really weird because I was looking at it and it's, like, it's, it's almost like the same placement, isn't it? The way that the blood runs down and scars. Yeah. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but yeah, the De Palma connections with the Zhao, it's there's a lot of coincidences, but I think, you know, he always denies seeing them and it's hard to really know if you would have seen something like Puzzle at the time. So yeah, it might be just a coincidence but an interesting one at that yeah that chainsaw is that plant is <laughs> it's so obvious early in the in the film that sequence you know i mean you're you're never in any doubt if you're going to see that chainsaw again are you yeah i think it's yeah quite clearly signposted what's going to happen later on i don't know why you tell me yeah. you saw. does she have trees in the garden or i was trying to work out if there's actually a logical reason why someone would have a chainsaw on their kitchen counter and i don't pick holes in these films but it's one of those things where i was just genuinely wondering uh there's a scene where the handyman i'm not sure if he's out there cutting wood or something and she says to him please don't leave the chainsaw out again in the kitchen or something to that effect ah, i've totally missed that at least i gave a reason even though it's obviously like going to come into play later on in the film but there is a little there's a little throwaway line there about it so to, so to sort of explain why why it's there on the kitchen table which is perhaps not the place where most people would store a chainsaw so what do you think of the of the final showdown then between Sarah and Daniele yeah I think it's good fun like it's surprisingly violent it said punctuated by some rather shocking moments that's obviously the big one strange yeah. head juxtaposed against the romanticism of Ted and Sarah um, and their relationship but yeah no it's um pretty effective I like it I like the old uh, sweep someone out from on a rug and so onto a chainsaw it's quite an effective yeah um, <laughs> yeah it's good I think it's what's really nice about it is like again we talked about Sarah's character and she's not so much of the damsel in distress she gives as good as she gets you know she chucks her stick at him and she's got the books and is chucking them and using anything that she can and she's very protective over Luca she doesn't want him to come to any harm so she prior to all that going down she's telling him to stay away yeah I think it's really good I like how she fights back I think it's effective you know as you said there's so much menace um, to Daniele's character uh, when he comes in yeah. yeah I think it works pretty well what do you think about it? No I like it as well I think it's I think it's well constructed and um, I'm a sucker for slow motion shots as well and there are some great slow motion running there as well so and it ends in in a gruesome way for Daniele so it's a good sequence and again you sort of need that feeling of like a proper threat to her because you you don't get that from George I think it's positive that it ends up that way I like the fact that it's not Ted coming in to save the day that she manages to do it on her own yeah I like that as well I think it's important that we have that especially you know for the progress of her character yeah. and how it is very much her film and I suppose in another film it could have ended very differently you might have had the death sequence but you also might have had
sad Sarah dying as well. Yeah. Forlorn uh, Ted, you know, remembering like all of their past together or something and it's some montage of their wedding or something. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm glad that yeah. it ends on a happy note. I think it works well in this case. I don't feel it's not like there's no cheap ending, is there? No. Like I mentioned before, it's such a difference to both uh, the Bloodstained Butterfly and Death Occurred Last Night and Tony Arcenta, which are films that are quite or very bleak. Mm-hmm. But this is actually gets uh, a happy resolution. Yeah. And like you mentioned prior, you know, that split second at the end where she realizes, you know, that Ted is who she wants to be with and everything is resolved in their own way. It fits well with the film. I think it doesn't, it said it doesn't feel cheap. I don't know, we didn't really talk about the opening, but the opening's quite, like, it immediately attracts your attention. Like, I thought when I first, I remember when I first watched Puzzle quite distinctly because it really hooked me in from the get-go. I'm a sucker for any Jalo set in London, so that always pulls me in regardless of what happens. Yeah, it's quite a nice, you know, like, setup. I think. Yeah. And it's not too convoluted, is it, really? It's quite easy to follow from the get-go, despite the fact that there's this idea of repressed memories. Like always when it's written by Gestalt, he doesn't really cheat. You can you can put it together. Yeah, on the whole it just works, doesn't it? it just Yeah, plot mechanics works. Works surprisingly well, but it's not overly convoluted. There's not loads of people thrown into the mix. I mean, its cast of characters are quite, yeah. and they're developed fairly well. So again, I don't think if you're kind of guessing who the murderer is, I suppose it's inevitable that you would guess correctly, but it's not about that. It's if you're watching it just to think like, can I work out who it is i think that's missing like the larger part of the film which is these relationships and like you said it's also got thriller elements and the, the thriller elements do work but yeah it's it's not solely just about the thriller elements it's about more more than that definitely should we talk a little bit about the production history on you go so the film was produced by Luciano Martina for Darnia Films and it started shooting on April 1st, 1974 and it shot throughout the spring of 1974 around Portofino and with interiors shot at Deer Studios in Rome. And it was shot by Giulio Albonico, the first of several collaborations between Tesari and Albonico. And apparently Tesari quite carefully storyboarded the film and it, it is a carefully composed and framed film and even like throwaway shots like Ted coming up to his um, psychiatrist looks looks amazing. Mm-hmm. I know you're a big fan of that shot as well. Yeah, I really love it. I, f- I feel it maybe it's a bit harsh when I said earlier about um, like it not being really experimental. It's it's not badly shot by any means. Like it's, it's a really well shot film. It's just not maybe creative. But I don't mean that as an insult, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But that is a creative shot, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's not... He's no Storaro. No, um, I, th- I think it's well framed. I mean, you can tell it's shot by somebody who knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. but is not is not mind blowing. But there are some nice touches, I think, in terms of editing and stuff, like the montage of Ted and Sarah going to bed separately. I really like that. That's a nice little little touch. And also the shot when Sarah's getting changed. She's about to take off her bathing costume, I think. And she kind of breaks the fourth barrier when she sees the audience closest, the locker to obscure the view when she's getting changed. It's a nice moment, isn't it? Is that, yeah. Yeah. It seems, yeah, a knowing wink to the audience. Yeah, I really like that. The credits list also lists, uh, for those who are eagle-eyed, it lists uh, Maurizio Merli as a boom operator, but it's not that one. That's <laughs> another one. Yeah. yeah, it's another one. It's surprising, actually, yeah, how many times names come up and they're not who you think they are. It's just a yeah, it's a very similar name or the same name. Exactly. Tesari's son Cristiano was an assistant set designer on this one, and he's actually in the scene at the bonfire, and he's the person who Ted uh, mistakes for George who's blowing his nose so that's a nice little cameo by him there yeah and also I believe that I had that in my notes for the setting but also there is I believe that Rock Hudson is also in that scene in the background mm. yeah so I've, I've read that as well but I've, I haven't actually managed to see him have you no I looked as well but I'm wondering if it's one of those things where it's just that he's in the shot but not particularly predominant like he's not prominent in the shot yeah Maybe it might well be. Yeah, we need it in blu-ray so we can be more eagle-eyed yeah, exactly yeah, so the film predominantly takes place off-season in Portofino. It's an ideal tourist setting, which I suppose accentuates Ted's feelings of alienation I and mean, overall feelings of disconnect. He feels very much like a tourist and an outsider. Um, and of course, he 
traverses this labyrinthian streets and it's a bit of a metaphor for the maze of his own mind if you want to be deep so yeah the film was filmed in portofino and some of the surrounding locales and they offer a stunning backdrop um there are a lot of exterior locations used throughout the film and they're utilized well uh we see characters running through narrow back streets boarding boats at the pier walking down by the coast and up in the leafy hillside and my own perception of portofino is as this place that people go to holiday so it's nice to see the local life in the film and there's one scene that takes place at the celebrations of um, portofino's patron saint san giorgio on the 23rd of april um, in which a large bonfire is lit as part of the festivities so that's a nice wee touch that we have a, a local tradition up here in the film and of course as you've mentioned which you always love the film's opening takes place in london and it is that classic image of london that we see time and time again in the shallow uh, leafy private gardens wrought iron railings red telephone boxes and the like these really um grandiose buildings so it's, it's always nice to see london in, in films like this but it always feels quite far removed <laughs> from the london that i'm familiar with yeah. it's nice to get a snapshot of it um, at that time I've just got a few notes here for production design as well. There's not much to say here because obviously it's not an ostentatious kind of pop art style, late 60s, early 70s shadow. But yeah, you can definitely see there's a conscious effort throughout the film to feature the colour blue and pretty much every character can be seen in variants of the colour and that's not a joke is that that is pretty much everyone wears blue at all times in the film. Um, yeah. from tracksuits to dressing gowns suits, accessories all sorts but yeah a lot of the home decor has blue running through it as well and I don't really have any sort of wise um, reasoning for that really but I think it always looks I think the way that colour is used is very nice in the film so from a superficial point of view um, I think it's very effective especially with Sandberger's um, flame red hair always has that nice contrast between the blue and the reds. Yeah. there's something maybe after there's a comment about a man in blue waiting for Ted in the restaurant um, which seems pretty funny as nearly every character is in blue <laughs> so it feels like a bit of an in-joke for the audience it might just be unintentional but I took it that way one thing about the home decor that I made a note of um, is that I did love the antique diver's helmet lamp and series oh yeah me too home. yeah it's a very nice touch <laughs> brilliant stuff so i guess that's what we've got left to talk about is the music yeah the score was composed by Gianni ferio who'd worked with sorry on several occasions they'd met up through mutual friends uh giuliano gemma and the singer mina in the late 60s and Tesori and Ferio had first collaborated on the Western Live or, or Preferably Dead in 1969 and then Ferio scored very successfully scored both Death Occurred Last Night and The Bloodstained Butterfly the Western Long Live Your Death and Tony R. Center I don't know about you but I feel like the pairing between these two is one of the most successful partnerships of, of a director and composer in like in the annals of Italian genre film and I think Ferio has had a, a real knack for producing tracks that were sort of I mean they're obviously Eurocart scores and you recognize that sound but there's also like a, re, a pop element to it that I think was missing from a lot of the other composers both here the the main theme Labyrinthus which was performed by Rosella is one of those and the same goes for the tracks from Death Occurred Last Night and Tony R. Center as well they're great pop singles really one thing that I really enjoyed was that Sari includes like a smaller marge to Mina in the film by having Sara and Daniele and Luca singing Parole Parole in the car How track that was actually written by uh, Gianni Ferrio and that Mina made a big hit so that was like a little a little homage to to his friend Mina and to Ferrio as well I really like that touch yeah it's lovely and it works so well in the scene yeah I liked as well um the chimes that were used throughout I'm not sure the specific piece of music but you, you have chimes in the music like chimes of a clock it, it feels like the chimes of yeah. a clock at times and that just kind of hammers home this film's predilection with time um so that was a nice touch as I said I'm not very good at like analyzing music not at all I just think the music's so beautiful in the film it's a really lovely score yeah I listen to this one quite a lot Ferrio's written some great music
The film received its censorship visa in mid-August 1974. So it basically came out in, in time for when the Italians came back from their annual leave. But of course, by this time, the big giallo boom was over and people have started to move on to Poliziotteschi and sexy comedy all'italiana. And the giallo genre wouldn't really regain its popularity. Not even Dario Gento's successful Deep Red could turn the fledging genre around. And Puzzle got average reviews and it did respectable business. It made 483 million lira at the box office. It wasn't his best performing film that year. His um, sort of black exploitation riff, Tough Guys, made 761 million lira. But I mean, 483 million was definitely a respectable box office for, for a Jallo in 1974. Mm-hmm. Tassari, he usually had quite good box office numbers. I mean, he often had over a billion lira for quite a few of his films and that Dario obviously made like several billion on a regular basis Fulci did it occasionally as well uh, on quite a few occasions actually but but in terms of like the the less popular ones I'd say that Tesoro was probably one of the most financially successful directors from from what I can see he would go on to make a few more films including Sorrow which was his next film with Landelon and Stanley Baker which did really good box office business and Safari Express with Giuliano Gemmenos Landros but that did well at the box office as well but during the 80s and the early 90s he moved on to and worked mostly in TV he did a few films including a try to sort of revitalize the western with um, 1985's text in the Lord of the Deep with Giuliano Gemma but that did really poorly and his last film was Beyond Justice with Rutger Hauer in 1992. Entesori passed away at the age of 67 due to cancer on September 6, 1994 in Rome. It's like interesting, as you said, that about Tessari, how popular he was as a director, because I think for fans outside of Italy, that might come as a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Rank Tessari up there. I mean, obviously, he's very successful as a director, such you know, spaghetti westerns and the like, but I don't know if people would necessarily think of him as, you know, these sorts of films as grossing as much as they did. No, no, like you say, I think I think we've we've talked about it before. Our perception of these films is very much depending on on how well known or how easily available they are now. But that says very little about how financially successful they were nearly 50 years ago yeah it just goes to show how things change and how perception of film changes i mean to be honest with you box office figures not not in a disparaging way they just become almost like irrelevant after a while because it is about the film's legacy it's funny how the films that were really successful maybe fall out of favor but then again like i said that is you know our perspective is from different countries you know we're from a different generation so it's all it's all relative isn't it So, do you want me to do final thoughts on the film? Yeah. For fans of the genre, Puzzle is a worthy watch, offering a variant on the established formula of the genre. Whilst it's perhaps not the most innovative example of a giallo, it offers something different, feeling like a more elegant offering to the genre. The film offers some solid performances, notably from Centerberger, who brings a real sensitivity and romanticism to proceedings as a woman struggling to open up once again to the man who broke her heart. This sense of romanticism throughout the film brings a great deal of warmth and heart to Puzzle, and the interactions between Ted, Sarah and Luca feel genuine, offering a different dynamic to the giallo. Yes, there's a lack of sex and violence throughout, but that perhaps makes the moments of violence that we do witness all the more shocking with the death of the lovable dog whiskey and the chainsaw scene sticking in one's mind long after the credits roll. Those who appreciate Jali with a more measured character-based approach are sure to appreciate the beauty of Puzzle, from its gorgeous Portofino locations to the exquisite Santa Burger and intriguing central mystery. Good. That's also that nicely summed up everything we talked about, I think. So. No, I think so too. Uh, the only thing I could add, mm-hmm. um, because I think you, you summed it up really well, is that... We've said that it's perhaps his most conventional thriller and that Death Occurred Last Night and The Bloodstained Butterfly, all they sort of pack a more powerful emotional punch in a way. And as we've mentioned, they have quite bleak endings and the stakes aren't quite as high here, but you do get that emotional resolve. And I just think it's a really enjoyable and well-constructed thriller and it really grows on me with each viewing. Yeah, I think that's really fair to say. I think like you, I find that I get a lot of out of it from you know, subsequent viewings, especially the the relationship elements. Yeah, so couldn't agree more with what you said. For the people that that do want the racer-wielding black-clad killer every 10 to 13 minutes, they're going to be in for a disappointment. But like you say, if, if you've got an interest in relationships, there's 
There's not all that many jelly that that will be better than this one. We had a competition last month um, to win a copy of Jimmy Gonzalez's superb audiovisual mix last night at DJ Took My Life. And the winner is our good Twitter friend at Freudstein2016, aka House of Freudstein. Um, so congratulations. Uh, we'll be DMing you shortly. So we thought we would share with you what our next Patreon episode is um, on the main show, just in case that you want to um, head on over to Patreon and pledge to us. So our next Patreon exclusive episode will be on Dario Argento's 1973 television series for Rai, Adoran to Darkness. And in this first bonus episode of two, we'll be talking about the first two episodes of the series, Il Ficino di Casa by Luigi Cozzi and Il Tram, directed by Dario Argento. And if you'd like to head that episode, as I said, head on over to the Patreon and pledge. And it'll be dropping before the end of January and the follow-up episode will be in February. Um, and as we've previously mentioned, there's no pressure to become a patron. Um, if you want to support us in other ways, head on over to iTunes and give us a rating and or review. Or alternatively, give us a recommendation on Facebook, spread the word on social media, or just shout out about us from the streets. And if you do want to reach us on social media, you can follow us on Facebook dash Fragments Pod or Instagram at Fragments Pod, or you can reach us on Twitter at Rachel underscore Nisbet or Signal Ward, or you can mail us on fragmentspod at gmail.com. As always, we'd like to thank the wonderful Ozarks for allowing us to use their cover of the theme to Seven Blood Saint Orchids as the Fragments of Fear music, um, and that's available to download slash buy from Bandcamp. Thank you once again for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed our take on Tessari's puzzle. Uh, keep an eye out on social media for details about February's episode. Patrons will get an exclusive reveal in January's bonus episode. Um, so all we have left to say is thank you and goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Is that okay? Good. Yeah. That's a wrap. Wow, we've done it.